0: So when you look at most influencers out there on social media, probably even the vast majority of them are more aligned with progressive values. So we can basically just say like, hey, you know, we've got this incredible campaign about climate change. We know that you agree with this set of issues. Now let's just help channel your passion for climate change to the work of this organization. And for the most part, folks are incredibly excited for that opportunity to make their passion actually work for an organization that's doing the real work in the world
2: Influencer marketing is yet another area of expertise used in modern campaigning. Today's guests are Malia Fisher and Sammy Alderson of Vocal Media. Vocal Media is an influencer marketing partner for high impact political campaigns and causes. They work to connect these campaigns with a network of creators on platforms like TikTok, and they also are building a software tool to facilitate this process. Malia is CEO and co founder and comes to vocal media as a political strategist, while Sammy, her co founder, has a background of making social media marketing tools for commercial clients in the music industry. We had a good conversation about what they are up to. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Malia Fisher and Sammy Alderson of Vocal Media. Hi, uh, Malia and Sammy.
1: Hey there. Hey, Nathaniel.
2: Hey, would you guys mind introducing yourselves and giving me quick biographies? Malia, can you go first?
1: Yeah, totally.
0: So I'm Aliyah Fisher. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vocal Media. Um, I am a lifelong political strategist. I have been working in progressive politics my entire career. I started in D.C. at the Center for American Progress, where I was working on all kinds of you know fun campaigns and projects during the Obama administration. I ended up on the Clinton campaign where um, I worked for John Podesta in his office in HQ from day one until the bitter end. And on that campaign, I really learned a heck of a lot about what we were doing to communicate effectively with young people um, in America, young voters, and what we really weren't doing, what we weren't doing well. And I truly believe that if we had had more enthusiasm and participation from young people, the course of that campaign might have gone differently. We lost by such a tiny margin, and um, I think it was really in hand, but we didn't really have the strategies um, in that moment as the internet was changing so um, substantively. Um, Right around 2018 through 2020, um, we saw a really big shift in the way that people were using social media. So I became really obsessed with social media and young people on social media. After that campaign, I started really focusing as a consultant um, on everything the organizations were doing well to communicate with young people and um, what they were doing wrong. And eventually I landed on this concept of influencer marketing being like a really incredible way for progressive groups to reach and engage and communicate with young people and with their audiences and get young audiences more involved and young voters more involved in progressive politics. In 2019, I started working on influencer marketing, I started out as a project, ran out of a larger Organization. And, um, you know, we founded Vocal Media in the early part of this year. It's been really amazing to start to build this team and, and scale the company.
2: I'm going to take the liberty, Sammy, of asking Malia a few questions more about that, and then I'll come back to you. I noticed in your biography that you went to Pomona, and I, you know, I always had this notion that that was one of the really nice small schools to go to. But what was your experience there?
0: Pomona College is a really incredible place. Um, I went there because it didn't have any sororities and fraternities, and it was like super intellectually um, intense.
2: How did you land at CAP, uh, Center for American Progress, and working for the founder and head of it, no less?
0: So it's so funny that you mentioned Pomona College. John's son um, went to Pomona, so um, I was interviewing for this role as his research assistant and sort of like deputy speechwriter. And he really loved the fact that I went to Pomona. I think he also has really good associations with um, sort of like caliber and intellectual training that comes out of that um, institution. It was a good match. And, um, you know, it was really special working for Don. I admire the heck out of him. He's one of the like great political minds of his generation. And And, um, it was, it was a really incredible way to start my career.
2: Tell me a little more about working with him because I don't know him. I've seen him at a fundraiser or two, perhaps from afar. What did you learn from him?
0: It's like so hard to pick out one thing. You know, the thing that I'd say about John is he really understands the Democratic Party and the constituency that's behind it. So he understands that the Democratic Party is, um, you know, maybe on its face, like it can look like a lot of, you know, white activists um, who are middle age or like, you know, people from big cities. But the people who really are so critical to making the Democratic Party um, apparatus function and our organizing systems function are women of color and people of color and organizing communities that have um, really deep roots in this country. And he never took that for granted for one second. His biggest priority on the Clinton campaign was to make sure that our organizing resources, that our political outreach, that um, everything was mobilized to support our engagement and building strong relationships with communities of color and leaders of color. And it was just very clear to me that, you know, making sure that the Democratic Party kept and maintained and continued to build strong relationships with Communities of Color was his sort of like why for being in the progressive movement I and mean, so much of what inspired him to found the Center for American Progress and, um, you know, just push for equity across the, the political system.
2: You must have had like such a different view than most of us had about that presidential campaign if you're kind of staffing the the campaign chair. And it was, it was a tricky one for him because of the release of his emails and all of the mess that ensued around that and kind of the cheating by the other side, as I think of it. Tell me a little about, you know, how it was from your vantage point.
0: Yeah, it was truly one of the most like devastating things I've personally witnessed. Um, you know, he took it in stride. Um, it was really, you know, major violation of his privacy and um it was tough, you know. Like there was public information that was released about um, his family and his grandkids, and really tough things that they all had to sustain because of um, that that data breach. So it was really tough to watch. It was, you know, really unexpected. There had been some lack of security in his personal email, as we know, but it was nothing that was like out of step with what was common practice at that time. And particularly for John, you know, um, someone who's been in politics long before the internet was around but really blindsided him and it blindsided all of our team um that we were vulnerable at that level it was really really tough to watch i'd say on a personal note
2: it also tells you something about the ethics of the other side that they would you know strategically use it many campaigns have had things in the past and not just out of honor but not this one
0: yeah, absolutely. That was one of the most unethical campaigns in the, the history of American politics in some strange ways, like almost puts Watergate to shame. It's, um, it, is, it was really dystopic, I think. There were a lot of people from day one who were advising senior members of the Clinton campaign just, you know, like how far um, the Trump campaign was going to Violate the law in so many different ways and we just knew that she was going to drop eventually and it definitely did
2: I've asked other people this. What was the election night like for you?
0: Was so bizarre. Um, I remember walking in, and like the uh, you know around ten a.m. to the Javits Center. We were doing getting there really early for all of John's media hits, and um, we walked in, and you know all the TV cameras were pointed at us, and they were like, "Hi, Mr. Podesta." You know, like how are you feeling on election day? And he's like, "I'm feeling good. I'm feeling strong." You know, and, and to a certain extent, we were because it was such a tight margin. We knew it was going to be a close election night, um, but as the day progressed, it became um, rougher. And and rougher to see um, the different, um, you know, senior advisors, the Clinton campaign really start to like it like sink in, you know, as we started to see like how much we were losing the Midwest. Um, we lost Florida, we were way behind in um, Wisconsin, and in Michigan. And it was just um, it was it was you watched it like dawn on people. Um, and it was like absolutely devastating. I got caught in um, a pipe and drape room in the airplane hangar at the back of the Javits Center where they had sequestered all the communications staff because the candidate was on her way at any moment, according to Secret Service, to deliver her election night acceptance speech. She's on her way. She's on her way. Of course, she wasn't on her way. And we all knew that. We watched. We were watching the television. But Secret Service hadn't gotten like the all clear to allow us um, out of the pipe and drape um, tents that they use to secure the area where, um, a principal is moving. It was just insane. We were in this little like 20 by 20 foot room, um, watching the, us lose the election.
2: I interviewed one of the spokesmen for Hillary early on in the podcast and he used the word calamity. And I think it was, it was an absolute calamity, not just the loss of the election, but the next four years of Trump. And it kind of got me going, at least talking to people who are fighting it. I just honor the people who are strong enough to keep going and stay in the business and try to make the, the country and the world better. Tell me about your path after the election. Tell me some more detail about how you get to starting vocal media. What did you do? What were the steps?
0: So I actually started by founding um, a tiny little nonprofit that was working on like raising the voices of young people in politics. And that was not a successful endeavor, but it really like helped me uh, pinpoint like where my passion in politics was. And I definitely knew that, you know, I I wanted to be an entrepreneur working as part of like a large organization as a relatively junior staff person on the Clinton campaign had been really tough for me. I'm not like the best employee. I think I really love um, building and leading my own team teams following my own vision. So I founded a consulting firm and, um, I was doing communication strategy with all kinds of amazing, um, organizations. I worked on criminal justice reform and voting rights and climate change. And that was just like such an incredible way for me to challenge my energy and passion in this space, but in an entrepreneurial way, where I was was following my own, my own dreams and the things that, um, I wanted to see change within the industry.
2: I noticed one of the places that you advised was the movement cooperative, uh, Tell me a little about them and what that engagement was like.
0: Yeah, so I worked on communication strategy with TMC for um, many years, actually. They were an incredible partner. It was so powerful to watch um, that organization grow from the ground up, build data systems. that are really unique um, to the way that the progressive movement has always operated and incredibly innovative. It was just an absolute privilege um, until the end. And then the Movement Cooperative and also its sister organization, the Cooperative Impact Lab, um, is where our influencer marketing project Was incubated out of. So I was leading that initiative, um, incubated within those two groups. And then Sammy was leading um, an organization called Big Ten Creative um, that was operating separately. And they had really developed an incredible specialty in um, TikTok um, and emerging social platforms. We had been operating largely on Instagram.
2: Why don't we go back and and catch uh, Sammy's biography? Sammy, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to college? What was your path into the workforce?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Australia, where I am at the moment, but have always been really passionate about living in different places around the world when I've been lucky enough to, to travel and, and explore. I kind of grew up as a, as a creative, quote unquote, and a musician. And I ended up going to a, like a fine arts university, I guess, to, to study music composition as a bachelor's degree. And was always passionate about making films making music making creative projects but above that was passionate about getting that to an audience clearly and effectively there was a lot of art that i would see that was really <laughs> i felt a little insular that was sort of made for the artist rather than for an audience and i was extremely hard working at trying to get stuff out there that people would respond to and and appreciate so anyway i was a typical struggling artist musician that, you know, put their music up on SoundCloud and got five plays on it and thought, damn it, maybe the next time. Um, But sooner or later you start to realize maybe, maybe we need a different strategy because there's a lot of us doing that. Uh, I ended up actually going over to LA again, cliche like a lot of artists do. Um, But something was different this time where I found this new social media app called Musical.ly. which for those that don't know, was sort of an early version of TikTok. It it was an early version of TikTok. They renamed it and rebranded it in 2018.
2: And on this app, there
1: was all these like young kids singing along to songs, but it was really lame, according to my younger brother. And it was uh, was not necessarily a super mainstream uh, social media platform. I could see this intense loyalty that audiences had with the music that was being sung, so I decided to reach out to a few of them and say, "Hey, can I get you to to sing one of my songs, or to you know do this lip syncing along to one of my songs?" And one of them said, "Yeah, sure. You know, it'll be fifty bucks." And the next thing I knew, I woke up the next day and there was one of my songs that had like ten thousand plays, and then I did it again and it got fifty thousand plays, and suddenly I realized, oh, "Okay, there's some there's real energy here. There's a real tight knit community energy here." Um, and for context, alongside all of this. I was always really into activism and was a total political geek, but it was always something that was completely separate to me. It was like, you know, I was a musician by day and I spent all night like researching politics, volunteering at NGOs. I was so passionate about all other stuff, but it was completely unrelated in my mind. Long story short, I ended up sort of moving out of the music industry and co founding a, a social media text platform, an influence search platform, because I realized I'm actually even more passionate about the empathetic communication here through these influences online, these people online, then I am about the music that I'm making built a tech platform that, you know, ended up being licensed by Sony one of all these major record labels that I initially wanted to contract with. And I ended up selling them technology instead during this time was just getting totally geeked out on social media and also started making Snapchat filters. When I saw a bunch of these other Snapchat filter creators discussing in a group saying, uh, there are people making, there's the, a the volunteer group for the Elizabeth Warren campaign that want people to make Snapchat filters for us. And they were all saying, what a ridiculous idea. They don't want to offer any money. You know, they want Snapchat filters. And I saw it and I thought, that sounds like my dream thing to do because <laughs> I'm so into politics. I, I, I aligned with her, you know, campaign and i love things like snapchat filters as a creative method of communication so i messaged the guy that set up the group and i said you know i'll do whatever it takes whatever you need i'm there i'll volunteer i'll help out nice and because i was just so excited by it i ended up getting more and more involved and we and that was the early start of big 10 which then sort of became vocal um but along that way i said you know you guys are doing the snapchat filter thing but You really should look at influences you really should look at you know tiktok and these other social media platforms and that was sort of the early beginnings of it
2: you know i had the ceo of big tent on the podcast earlier his name was ecs tell me more about big tent in politics
1: we initially started as warren's meme team um and this is going to be me sort of translating a lot of the the really great ideas from uh Misha Leibovich, who founded this, who founded Warren's meme team, and who I contact, I just you know DM'd on Twitter and said, "Can I be involved?" Um, so initially, what that was was it, it was based around this theory that in 2016, the right sort of did a better job of a bunch of stuff on the internet broadly. I think what what Misha's idea was, and I, I do agree with this, was that a lot of that was this this sort of templatized internet content, whether it was like memes or Twitter threads, this really kind of very toxic stuff used by the Trump campaign, nonetheless very effective in terms of viral communication by supporters of that campaign. And certainly you look at it and you go, again, really toxic, really nasty things, but it's it, did cause a lot of damage um, in the end. So he was sort of looking, is there a way that we can do this on the left in a more constructive way, in a more ethical way, um, but still by capturing this sort of grassroots viral internet culture? And so one of the first things he was looking at was, was these things called lenses or filters. You know, you see them on Instagram. The typical one is um, the puppy dog filter on Snapchat. And one of the ideas behind that was that the problem with what the right was doing was it was very anonymous. But people could say whatever they wanted, and they did, and they said a lot of awful things and caused a lot of trouble by, by you know hiding their faces with some anonymous Twitter account or YouTube comment or whatever it was with filters and lenses you have to show your face, and the left are often more willing to because you know it, what they're saying is not so um egregious that was the starting point, which was saying you know can can we build a template where um We're showing support for Elizabeth Warren, conveying her proposed plans and policies um, in a a filter that goes on your face and that you can then share to other people. So the message is there. The message is pre-constructed, but all the user has to do is kind of show up with their face's support. And that was the early version of it.
2: And then what did it grow into?
1: So we started doing that for a while. We got some traction with the filters when I started, I said, look, I, I don't think that you know, we should be using these filters that are too complicated. We tried to simplify them. We started getting some filters that got like a million uses or 10 million uses. And, and that really gained the attention of some, some bigger donors, some bigger funders, some bigger support. Um, and we decided let's go beyond filters. Let's go beyond memes. Um, and let's make something, like I said, that is involving influencers, that's involving new platforms like TikTok, Um, And so that's when we decided to form Big Ten Creative, so a more more, um, broad and capable sort of creative agency. To be honest, it was really for the 2020 election, and we weren't sure if we'd do a good job or not, if we'd be successful or not, and if we'd survive through the 2020 election or not. But we knew that we wanted to um, get as many Democrats out to vote in 2020 as we possibly could, get as many people um, being communicated to effectively as we could, uh, and we ended up getting into voter registration. So we ended up using the same methods that I used to get people to listen to my music in the early days to register to vote. So getting these people on TikTok, getting these people on social media platforms to encourage their friends in niche communities um, to go out and register to vote. We registered 29,000 young people primarily, young people of color primarily, to to get registered, to go and vote. It was the, the adventure of a lifetime. Like it was, it was a total dream come true for me to be even involved in. And, you know, every day was just like checking the numbers, how many people have registered. Okay, you know, we, we've got more people registering and it was a total, total thrill.
2: 29,000 is a lot of people. It's a slim number in a presidential election, but it's a hell of a lot more than I registered. I'll admit to that. And it's the kind of thing I assume that you can scale up into the future. What other things did Big Tent do? in the run-up to the last election?
1: We had a pretty experimental approach, which was definitely fun. And I think it was effective because it let us figure out what did work and importantly, what didn't work. So we would spin up experiments and cut them. One of them would be trying to do viral sounds on TikTok. So sounds on TikTok, are sort of an audio template that spreads much the same way that filters on Instagram. snapchat would spread so it's kind of like you have the sound and then all you have to do is show up with a video to the sound so ones that we would do would be like we'd remix a cardi b song and put at the end of it her voice saying you got to go out and vote um and it flopped so we didn't do it another experiment we did was tried to do we tried to even create virtual rallies online when when covid really hit and people weren't going to be able to show up in person again it flopped so we really honed in on what we did enjoy that work, which was influencer marketing and lenses. At the end of the day,
2: I'm getting to be an old man. I'm about to turn 56. I came up through with you know through the world of computers, but there's something that sits wrong or unpleasantly with me about the idea that we can affect the leadership of the free world by making funny filters or you know nice filters or you know messing around on social media can you offer sammy a defense of how politics is conducted in the time of social media and why this might be a positive thing not not my get off my lawn sort of antique view
1: well, you know, firstly, I think that that's an understandable place to start from. I, 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 I definitely appreciate that, and I've had conversations like that. And you know, there's been times early on where I've reflected on it myself and really tried to investigate that feeling and understand: is this, is this strange? Is this a new sort of era, and, and is it good or bad? In terms of filters, it's just a digital version of a t-shirt. You know, a lot of this stuff has has correlations to, to previous methods being used
2: and, and things in 19th century campaigns were highly toxic if you learn about them i mean like yes this toxicity that, or just the way that marketing is in, in different facets as part of it has always been there but there is something different about the speed which it can spread the anonymity the way other countries can hijack it it's different in kind than it ever was
1: absolutely and and you know i some I think about this stuff all day like when when I think it's a weak defense when some people say in general, social media is the same as things were a hundred years ago um it's just now it's online because it's not it's exactly like you're saying it's faster it's And and just by virtue of being faster, it makes it more dangerous because the car's going faster, more damage can be done if it spins out of control. Like, I I definitely agree that there needs to be a lot of care taken. It's
2: not geographically confined the same way. So you can find other crazies so quickly and gang up with them and amplify things as well as amplify positive things.
1: And and then you have these sort of international... um, Communities that are like, you know, there are Trump supporters in the U.S. and in Poland and in Brazil and in Australia. I saw someone with a Trump flag the other day. You wouldn't have seen that a hundred years ago. That's because there's these international connections between ideologies and left wing ideologies as well. Again, dangerous. But what I would say is not not only you know do things sort of have a correlation to the past. There's a huge upside to this, which is that our alternative option is to leave people that are young and minorities and people of color that are just online to leave them to the side and be not involved in politics. This is basically the only way that they're going to get involved in politics because they're spending four and a half hours a day on social media on their phone. And although there are dangers to this, people are working on that. We are super cautious of those things. And this has to be done for an ethical kind of inclusion of a ton of people that are going to be left aside from politics. Otherwise,
2: and not only would would they not not hear from us, but they would hear from the other side if we left them alone, right? And we've seen what that can do. Malia, would you mind comparing this a bit to other platforms and uh, like Instagram, and what else do you think is relevant to this discussion that you're looking at?
0: Our company is really focused on TikTok right now, um, and we've seen a huge evolution in influencer marketing across the board with brands, in the progressive movement, as we've seen engagement rates and interest in marketing on Instagram with influencers there who were very image focused, who were a little less substantive, move over to TikTok. So a lot of the dollars that were being spent on Instagram you know, last year, even when we were running our campaigns at the Movement Cooperative, are now being spent on TikTok. And that's an incredible, Incredible thing for progressive organizations because progressive organizations are messaging about substance. We're trying to tell people how to get involved. We're trying to tell people where to get involved. Um, what tools do they need? What rallies should they attend? How should they register to vote? Really substantive actions and tools that we're putting in people's hands. TikTok is an incredible platform for that. Most of the influencers, people that um, we understand to be influencers on TikTok are really creating educational um, content in some form Or content that's really more about like entertainment value um, and substance of entertainment value rather than what we saw on Instagram over the last decade, which was really image focused, which was, you know, toxic in the sense, you know, we saw obviously the reports on um, the impact of the Instagram platform on young girls over the last week, which is incredibly illustrative of the type of culture that exists on that platform. On TikTok, it's way less image focused. There's um, a lot of really powerful advocacy and campaigning happen. You can learn about philosophy on TikTok. You can learn about, um, you know, how to play different games on TikTok. You can learn. About cooking, you can learn about jazz, you can learn about basically anything under the sun on that platform. And that's an incredible thing for the type of marketing that we're doing.
2: A friend of mine, their son is really into cooking, and his sister filmed him cooking and you know, cut it up into kind of quick videos that were fast motion and one to two million hits. And then he found himself on a reality cooking show as a contestant and like this is one of the main ways information is now being conveyed and i just talked to uh, heather holdridge the other day who does uh, content for planned parenthood and she was telling me like tiktok has passed up other platforms now but i guess in the game that you're working on you have to follow where people are in order to communicate to them most effectively right
0: yeah, totally. Um, I mean, there are, you know, almost 1.5 billion active users of TikTok now um, between China and and the rest of the um, global ecosystem. So it's a huge platform. Um, People are spending more and more time there relative to other platforms. And I think a lot of that is because of what you described, um, where it's really delivering outsized returns for small creators. So even influencers who are micro or nano um, can see content that goes like amazingly viral gets like millions of engagements um, from one video. Video just because, you know, they create something that's engaging and the algorithm rather than just showing that to their followers takes it out to a much wider audience. So it's really awesome because it just gives like, you know, smaller creators, the ability to grow much larger, reach much larger audiences. And you don't have to have that same sort of like, um, you know, it's not like that one-to-one relationship that you have with your audience.
2: So let's take us one step back now. So here you are with, with a fair amount of experience online and in politics and, You've created, uh, spun out, I guess, a vocal media. Who are you working for? What are you doing for them? What is your competitive edge over other people who might purport to be doing the same thing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we work with a lot of really incredible issue advocacy organizations and um, campaigns. Um, we're working, you know, with moveon.org, one of our oldest um, and, um, you know, most long-standing partners. We're working with Planned Parenthood. We're working um, with Latino. Um We are running a huge like diversity of different types of campaigns, um, campaigns that are focused on persuading different audiences on different types of issues, on issues like abortion um, that are really sticky and thorny. Um, We're actually really creating compelling content um, and reaching across the aisle in some cases. We're doing a lot of, you know, base mobilization, engagement, working with young creators of color to reach out to, you know, low propensity voters and communities of color who are young, maybe unregistered to vote. Um, We're going to do a big campaign with National Voter Registration Day, which will, of course, scale for, um, you know, the bigger explosion of National Voter Registration Day um, next year for the midterms. We're growing really quickly, we're taking on a lot of new, exciting work, and um, it's very, very fun time to be in this business. Everybody's sort of discovering it for the first time.
2: Sammy, what's your version of that? What do you think you're offering that other people aren't? What are you guys good at?
1: I think we have a more holistic sort of platform agnostic approach to this. Uh, you know, at the, at the core of both what Malia and I have done over the last several years has been Clear and effective communication. A lot of the times, people—I've certainly seen it in in the brand and marketing industry where I was before this. People get really excited by a new and shiny platform, and they underestimate a little bit of what it actually does and how tight-knit the communities are there. And they will kind of go, "Okay, we're going to jump onto TikTok. Let's do a TikTok." It takes a lot more than that, in my opinion. It takes it, even even down to relationships a lot of the people that we work with a lot of the influencers we work with we have personal relationships with that we've known for you know a couple of years they consult us and our clients and tell us the best way to, to do these campaigns and to connect with these audiences showing up with a bit of you know a handful of cash and kind of going okay let's do a TikTok campaign we'll get you some results but not not anywhere near what we're trying to achieve
0: And our team really marries marketers and political strategists, which is what I think is very unique compared to the other sorts of influencer marketing agencies you might be able to work with. Mostly, you're going to find brand marketers and influencer marketing. They really get the way the platforms work. They're really good um, at creating content, but they don't understand anything about politics. And what's more, uh, they often don't care. And what's more than that, sometimes the company is actually actively trying to avoid getting into political conversations online and coordinating political conversations conversations online. We see that with a lot of different clients who used to work with um, brand marketing, influencer marketing organizations. It's just um, really tough to do that translation work.
2: How big has this enterprise become now? How many people are, are working for you? What kind of stage are you in the development and how are you building it?
0: So we are still in a very early stage of development. Um, we've got about six people full time and we've got a handful more contractors, a bunch of different folks. You know, we've got a development team that's building out a really cool SaaS platform, which is going to be an influencer discovery tool that's specific to politics and social impact. So we're in a super early stage, but it's incredibly exciting. Our campaigns team is really robust. You know, we've got a lot of incredible campaign managers Um who bring together that marketing expertise with their political strategy minds. So, um, yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's been very, very exciting to watch, um, the company grow and we are hiring new people basically every week to keep up with the way our engagements are expanding.
2: Sammy, did you guys raise money? Is it bootstrapped? Or are you going to try to raise more? What's the financial strategy or history?
1: In, in 2020, when we were in an early version of Big Ten, we were lucky enough to get a small small amount of money raised to run our campaigns. That continued on through to the start of 2021 because of the exciting and promising results we achieved through our experiments. Um, and now, you know, we have a combination of funding and also being paid for a ton of campaigns. So we're running these campaigns, firstly, as an agency where, where we have... A larger client base that will keep us running as a successful business and as malia was sort of suggesting we're going to edge further and further into the technology space we'll sort of spin out a little bit more of a tech side of the company where we can license our influencer database um, as more of a software as a service model going into the future
2: have you guys investigated what the other side is doing. Is there an agency or agencies on the Republican slash conservative side that has an expertise in this area? Have you learned it all from them?
0: Such a good question. I will endeavor to learn the answer to that one. <laughs> oh.
2: <laughs> I, it's very frequent that when I ask people on our side that question, they're very aware of the competition, the, the direct competition and other models, uh, on our side, but they don't often pay attention, I guess, because they're not competing head to head with what the other side is doing. And sometimes the other side is just using a commercial thing that they are aware of. But I I would think that there's smart people over there and it might make sense. I have no no idea what they're up to, but I'd be curious. And certainly if I were in your shoes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've got an incredible, I think, set of um, nonprofit organizations, C4s, that have sort of like talking head personalities that organize more on like the meme army side. So a little more anonymous, like the Mike Cernoviches of the world who are broadcasting to groups of trolls who are essentially like shitposting on platforms like Reddit and Twitter. But it's not the same sort of um, thing that we do. And to be honest, I don't even know if it's actually available to them because the thing that we have um, that we cannot lose sight of, and I think we really lost sight of this on the Clinton campaign, politics, uh, progressives have culture. We own the culture. The culture is completely aligned with progressive values. It's aligned with progressive vision for the future. So when you look at most influencers out there on social media, the majority of them, probably even the vast majority of them are more aligned with progressive values than they are with um, conservative values. So we can basically just say like, hey, you know, we've got this incredible campaign about climate change. We know that you agree with this set of issues. Now let's just help channel your passion for climate change to the work of this organization. And for the most part, folks are incredibly excited for that opportunity to make their passion actually work for an organization that's doing the real work in the world.
2: We have a lot of wonks, you know, the Center for American Progress, you you came out of that The Elizabeth Warren campaign, you know, with all of their policy releases. How do we translate something that Often was spread with a PDF that was read by 42 people. How do we take that information and aim that at an audience that may not read, (laughs) that may spend a lot of time scrolling with their finger and is expecting content in seven second chunks or whatever in video. Give me an example. So I have a podcast. I talk to people for an hour. That anyone listening to it is receiving information, just audio in a very slow way, right? Probably not a lot of 16-year-olds. If I went to engage with you, how would you help me take some of this content and repurpose it into a TikTok world,
0: I actually see a lot of podcast repurposed content on TikTok. And the way that they do it is they take a video segment that is like the money line from that interview. It's like their one one-minute piece of brilliant wisdom and they cut it and they post it on TikTok. Um and it really performs quite well as long as like what the person is saying is engaging and it's engaging right at the front of the video. So it sort of has that hook um, and it gets people excited. But to your broader question about, <laughs> you know, like, how do you what get- would it
2: be from this interview so far that we that would even come close to that? It's hard I to. Know, I know.
0: <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe it's that sort of like unicorn moment, um, it, one out of five um, interviews. But um, it, it's definitely it's definitely an art. We actually see a huge amount of incredibly substantive, um, like really detailed political, historical, social commentary on TikTok. For example, we work with um, an influencer named Khalil Green, who's the first Black student body president of Yale. He's still at Yale. He's just about to graduate, and um, he does Black history on TikTok and. And his videos, you wouldn't believe how much substance he gets into that three minute clip. And he does it by combining his audio with, you know, uh, different words that are going across the screen to really underscore the key substantive points. And then he'll back it up with a blog post sometimes, or he'll like, you know, send you out to other resources. But it's just an incredible amount of information. I've watched his videos three times in a row, just so I felt like I could actually follow all the detailed points that he was getting across.
2: That sounds like a lot of work.
0: It is, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, very impressive. What would be your answer, Sammy, to that question?
1: Firstly, I think it's a really great question. And it. I think clear communication and good communication is not always short. Um, so I think there's a really important time and a place for, for concise communication, because if you only have someone's attention for a short amount of time, you really have to get them quickly. That, that's what TikTok is great at. Um, but there is a place for the 42 page pdf as well because eventually that does need to be communicated or else there's no real point in making it and we are seeing a slight rebound in the social media world and creator relationships that we have where it's not about social media getting shorter and shorter and shorter a lot of people kind of explain tiktok as being the real pinnacle of look now it's only 15 seconds and then it will be five seconds the the creators and the influencers that we listen to are seeing things go the other way as well, where a lot of them really want to do live streaming. A lot of them do live streaming on platforms like YouTube and Twitch, and they live stream for three or four hours at a time. Um, So they'll do a five, seven second TikTok and they'll say, you know, come and join my live stream to talk about this. This is why I really care about it. And then people will listen to that live stream for three hours while they talk about Medicare for all and play video games. So, There's a balance there and there's nuance there that I think is really exciting.
2: Yeah. So where are you guys trying to take vocal media? If things go as you would love, where will it be in five years? What will it be doing?
0: We really believe in offering a SaaS tool into the political market that's going to allow political campaigns, organizations, even marketing firms, all the different paid media firms to really do their own influencer marketing campaigns at scale. So the SaaS tool will allow people to do search and discovery of influencers that are really specific um, to politics. So we're going to get really um, granular on influencer location, the audience demographics, the issue affinities, the influencers, racial and ethnic identity, some of the things that the platforms that were built for brand marketing are just never going to be able to offer you because um, their customers don't need that type of information. Ours is going to be really specific to politics and social impact. And then on terms of campaign management side, it's going to be, um, you know, like integrate with all the different like campaign tools and things like ActBlue to allow people to fundraise and integrate those fundraising metrics into their influencer marketing campaign. We think this is going to be really critical to getting influencer marketing to actually scale within the progressive movement. Because right now our agency services are absolutely amazing and it's great to have an agency see running your entire campaign for you, but some organizations are never going to be able for that or they're just going to want to run them in-house themselves. So we believe that, you know, our SaaS tool is going to be really critical to getting the movement where it needs to go.
2: What's your plan for how to build that? Because if I understand you have six people and you're doing the services that you're already offering, that's going to require either hiring it out to another firm or uh, hiring a staff of of engineers, depending on the ambition here. What, what's the plan for how you're going to do that?
1: Well, fortunately, a few of those six people are um, experienced in building SaaS tools. So um, I, I sort of went over it quickly earlier, but uh, I, I started a business that is a social media influencer SaaS tool, just more for the brand and music industry than obviously for politics and progressive progressive causes.
2: are you? able to use any of that code or do you just rebuild based on the knowledge or how, what's what have you got there as far as an edge and getting to where you want to go quickly
1: yeah i mean there's a lot of just sort of experience there in terms of these are the types of um, tools you use these are the types of people you need to work with i'm not a developer myself unfortunately so I, that's not my area of expertise but I have seen the kinds of people that you want to work with for this sort of thing. So we've got a developer on board now. um, And we've also teamed up with another kind of part-time consultant that has built another platform. So once you have those people in the room, there's a pretty straight line to building this out. The real key questions for us to get this right are having a lot of good conversations with progressive organizations to understand what is different about this, that's going to specifically solve their problems and open the door for them into this, influencer the marketing world that the vast array of very brand-centric influencer platforms out there don't do, and we have a couple of um, things in the works for that.
2: What's the time frame? When when can I expect to start using it?
1: <laughs> well, at the moment we're kind of working towards an invite system over the next sort of six six to eight months, where we're going to allow partners sort of access to our database, because th- there's a very sort of slow ramping up of this where we already have a database of progressive influences sh- showing what kind of issues they align with, showing um, you know their identity and, and quite unique data points like that. We're able to start to license that out slowly and slowly. Um, we're hoping leading up to the 2022 midterms that we're gonna maybe make it more publicly accessible. And certainly by 2024, this thing should be in full swing and the mainstream influencer platform on the left.
2: Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I
1: should have?
0: I think we might have covered everything.
1: Yeah, nothing comes to mind. There's always a million little things, but they may not be exciting or interesting. This is, so far, it's been great.
2: What else would you like people to know about vocal media or what you're up to? with this uh, new enterprise.
0: I think we'd, we're really excited about a lot of the experimentation work um, that we're doing right now with new and emerging platforms like Discord and Twitch. If there are any partners out there who um, you know want to just like be a part of that sort of learning and development work, we really are worried about the progressive movement falling behind in terms of adoption and engagement with these new platforms, the same way that we've been behind on the other social media platforms out there. So our team is, you know, we know that like you know, skate organizing on Discord is not ready for necessarily prime time, um, but we have a lot of resources to help us organize um, and collaborate on experimentation there. And we're super excited to do that with partners because the thing about influencer marketing is it really works best when you've got um, a partnership on board with a organization that is really has a great reputation in the space that has strong relationships with influencers that has a strong brands on the internet. So we need those partners in order to run our campaigns even on the experimentation side.
2: A simplification of what the difference between the two sides right now is that the Republicans have really mastered sort of fear and grievance, things like that, to motivate their side. Are we stuck with love and hugs and information? What is the proper reply to the power that they've harnessed over there on the dark side?
0: It's such a good question. Um, I really struggle because I think that the progressive movement should double down on love and on a brighter vision for the future of this country. And, you know, hate and division um, are really what's driving people to become disengaged with the political system.
2: But isn't that what people watch? Isn't that what people respond to? Isn't that? I'm hoping the answer is no. Like When I went to the women's march after the Trump election and I walked in the streets with the people that were upset, they were upset in the most positive community sort of way. And I felt lifted up by that and relieved. And I think that's a pretty good reply in a certain way. But I worry about, are we using all the tools? Are we seeding some ground? But, you know, that whole, if they go low, we go high thing, um, it could be a little dangerous, right?
0: It could be. And I think that there's always going to be room in the progressive movement in the Democratic Party for operatives that are working behind the scenes, um, you know, making sure that people get information about like the kind of harm that right wing um, political movements in this country are doing to people in their lives. And you can highlight that harm. But I definitely am with Michelle Obama on the uh, go go high. Um uh, as the long-term strategy um, that will ultimately win us the votes and keep the people that we really want to be engaged that vote for progressive causes reliably in the system.
2: Sam, is this international work? You're speaking from another country. Are you aiming at the U.S. market only? Or are you planning to broaden that?
1: We're certainly focused in the U.S. We have started actually working with uh, a client in Australia. Um, which is not a coincidence that I'm here as well. Uh, but like I said before, you know, I think that it's sort of sort of hard to ignore when like I, I was going through the city here the other day and there's like a giant protest to go against vaccination and there's guys with Trump flags in a town in Australia. You know, that's like, it, this stuff crosses borders, whether we'd like it to or not, unfortunately.
2: Well, I really look forward to seeing what you do with your software as a service product and with your consulting, and I hope that you're able to make a big impact out there. Uh, Is there anything else you wanna say?
0: I thought of the thing that you didn't ask us about. So something that I think is really important to understand um, about influencer marketing is that it really can go head to head with advertising on Facebook's platform. For example, our average campaigns right now, again and again, we're replicating these results. We're getting between 2 and $0.03 cents per engagement. So sometimes that like, vastly outperforms what someone is getting um, with an ad spend. Um, it's not quite as easy to replicate over and over again. But when you hit it out of the park, you really hit it out of the park you vastly outperform. Um, We have a lot of different like, you know, hard and soft ways to measure that um, using different tools. But um, we just think it's an incredibly compelling marketing strategy that if we leave it on the sidelines, we're just missing another opportunity to reach voters. Okay.
2: Well, it's definitely been a pleasure to talk to you both and I appreciate your time. That was Malia Fisher and Sammy Alderson. Malia and Sammy are at vocalmedia.io. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.